As we open your word, God, help us to be attentive to you. To set aside the noise and the voices and to hear your word and your words. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, make our hearts into good and fertile soil to receive your word. Grow within us things that will bring you glory and bring us joy and that will bring about your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as John said, what a, what a week it's been in America and for America and so also for us and for many people around the world. I think I watched more TV on Wednesday than I have in one day, one single day in maybe 30 years. So much to ingest, so much to hear, so much to think about, so much is being written and so much is being said. By the media, by the right, by the left, by the middle, by Christians, by non-Christians, by people from all over the map. There are a few things that maybe can be said as Christians, as a church, that in all of this we are reminded of our humanity, that we ourselves have no claim on righteousness but live by God's grace alone, that we confess, as John said, our own depravity and our own sin and our own corruption. Our prayer is that the church be one, that though the world may be divided, that our nation may be divided, that the church be one, that the people of God in Christ live in harmony. That we see in one another across the aisle in the church and across the aisle in Congress, the image of God imprinted from creation on every human being. That we love our neighbors, that we learn again to lay down our lives, that we love our enemies, as hard as that is, but that we know that in Christ we are not only given power, but also a model and an example in that. And as Paul wrote to the Romans, as much as it is up to us to live at peace with everyone. And in all of this, I think we were all reminded this week in a variety of ways that leadership matters. Leadership matters at all kinds of different levels and in all kinds of different ways. Leadership matters. Say that with me at home. Leadership matters. And coincidentally or maybe providentially, Today we ordain and install leaders in our local congregation, recently elected elders and deacons. These are not our only elders and deacons, these are the elders and deacons that over the last number of months through a discernment process 
were invited to consider a call by the congregation represented by our nominating committee and who then discerned for themselves God's call upon their lives to serve for the first time or continue to serve in called offices of elder and deacon. We as a congregation, as a body, agreed with our nominating committee back on December 6th and elected them, all of them, to these offices of deacon and elder. Every legal vote was counted. And all of their elections were unanimous. And so, like the senators who continue to serve six-year terms, we've got other elders and deacons who continue to serve three-year terms, and they being on those continuing terms will not be elected uh, today or uh, inaugurated, we might say, ordained and installed today, but they continue in service others. But we'll get to that a little bit later on. We're continuing this, this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark, which we began way back on August 30th. This morning we're jumping backward into a passage of chapter 3, which as you may remember, I intentionally skipped over about a month ago so that we could return to it today. And that's what we're doing. So reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, listen closely. This is the Word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, in other words, the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they, in other words, the large crowd, heard about all that Jesus was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. In other words, from the south and from the north and from the east, the west was the Mediterranean Sea. People couldn't easily come from there. Verse 9, because of the crowd, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the, the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. The crowds were massive everywhere Jesus went. It was still early in his just now becoming public ministry. Jesus wasn't yet ready for all of the attention that would eventually come his way. That's our best guess at why he told the impure spirits to be silent. That and the fact that he didn't need or want their endorsement. And then verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside. And called to him those he wanted. Not everyone, not the whole crowd, not massive numbers, just those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, Petros. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them Jesus gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, also known as Levi. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, indicating his political persuasion. And Judas Iscariot the one who may have been from the south. 
or from Judah who betrayed him. Jesus could have lived among the masses. He could have spent all of his time preaching to big crowds. But Jesus knew that true discipleship, learning growth, maturation, spiritual formation, devotion is shaped in and through smaller groups. Such qualities and development come about in smaller groups, in one-to-one conversations, in mentoring relationships. And so I'll say now as sort of a sidebar here, that if you do not meet regularly in some way, shape, or form, in person, via Zoom, on the phone, with a small group of some sort, you are missing out on the way of Jesus' discipleship. The way of Jesus in building depth into a person, in building faith, in building obedience, and nurturing understanding. Jesus' way was preaching to large crowds, but not also when he really wanted to pour into people. And for that to stick, he did that in small groups. In groups of 12, sometimes in groups of just three. And so if you're not in a small group, a little advertisement, I encourage you, find a way to find a mentor, to, to, find, to get into a discipling triad, to be in a group that's intentional about learning to follow Jesus. If you need help with that, email me, email one of your elders, reach out to someone in your life, connect with your deacon. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and in the scriptures, including Mark's gospel, significant things happen on mountaintops. And Jesus there called to himself those he wanted. Jesus is always directing the action. Jesus is always directing the action in the scriptures. He is never surprised. Things are never beyond his control. He was never a victim. Jesus was always directing the action and intentional about all he did. And they came to him. Then, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And we would also add from our study of Mark's gospel to heal, which was a part of always connected to the exercising of demons. And the operative verb in the sentence is most often here translated into English as appointed. But the Greek word, epoiesin, from the root verb poieo, the primary definition of is to make. Its root and core definition is not necessarily to appoint, but to make, to shape, to fashion. To construct, to produce, to form, to make. It's interesting that Mark doesn't say that Jesus counted 12 or that he counted out 12, which is the verb we might expect before the number 12. It's what one does with numbers. But rather, Mark tells us that Jesus made 12. He shaped these 12. He fashioned them. Jesus called to himself those he wanted. They came to him. And then Jesus made them. It's an interesting choice of words, of verbs. The most important verb here is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Where at the beginning of Genesis, God made. God made. God made. God made. 
First the heavens and the earth, and then eventually man and woman. But obviously Peter, James, and John and the others had already been made in that sense. And so what Mark is telling us Jesus did here was wholly different, as if God and Jesus was making them again. Remaking them, making them into something new and someone new. A new people and a new era and a new reality for a new purpose and for God's glory. And there were 12 tribes of Israel. Now these 12 men represented this great new thing that God was doing in Jesus built on the foundation of Israel. Are you with me? The word appointed doesn't fully capture what Jesus was doing. It fits well when we appoint or ordain or install at times like these. But it doesn't fully capture what Jesus was doing, what Jesus did. He was not just filling slots on an elder board, on a deacon board. He was actively making or remaking human beings. Putting his imprint, his personal imprint indelibly upon them. And how did Jesus do that? By inviting them to be with him. In Jesus, God came to us. Jesus was and is God with us, Emmanuel. And on top of that, Jesus invited these men to be with him. He was with us. He came to be with us. Incarnation. And then he invited them to be with him. Today, being with someone may look like this, this picture on the screen. Humorous and sad, the way that we live together but live in silos and autonomously and in our bubbles all too often with our phones in hand. I'm guilty of that. Have been many times and regularly. But in Jesus' day, being with someone meant to live with them. To spend time with them, to pay attention to them. To learn from them. To become like them. I remember in college sometimes noticing over the years that sometimes over time roommates would begin to sound like each other. They would speak in the same ways because they had spent so much time in close proximity. Spending so much time with each other they would begin to take on the characteristics of the other. It was such a strange phenomenon, but so very true. And that happens with us beyond college and in different ways in our lives, in our minds, in our character, in our hearts. When we live in close proximity with someone. But more than that, in the New Testament, discipleship means being an apprentice or student or learner of Jesus. In our daily existence, a disciple is simply someone who has decided to be with another person in order to become what that person is or to become capable of doing what that person does. What does Jesus do that I can be discipled to do? 
And the answer we see in Mark's gospel is that he lives in the kingdom of God, Jesus does, and his disciple then learns to do the same. And he applies the kingdom of God for the good of others, Jesus does, and his disciples learn to do the same. And Jesus makes it possible for his disciples to do that. To live in the kingdom and to invite others to do the same. To enter it. Jesus called those he wanted and they came. And he made them by having them be with him. Learn from him. Apprentice with him. Become like them. So that they would be able to announce and in a sense embody the presence of the kingdom of God. They were to be with him and to share his mission. And being with him always came first. There will be more mission later. But first is to be with him. Being a Christian today has come to be understood as or embodying or consisting of going to church on Sundays or periodically on Sundays and then going to heaven when one dies. Jesus, however, called people to be with him, to become like him, so that eventually he could hand off his ministry to them. But first they must become more and more like him. And today for us, that certainly means a number of things, which include, I would say, four things. First, being immersed in God's word. Knowing Jesus through the scriptures. Knowing Jesus through the gospels. Knowing what Jesus said and did firsthand rather than through hearsay or osmosis. Read the scriptures. Read the gospels. Be immersed in God's word for yourself, number one. Second, spending time with God in prayer. And not primarily speaking, not primarily asking, not primarily telling. But instead primarily listening, having asked God to speak to one. Through, one, through God's spirit and through God's word. Spending time with God in prayer, listening, number two. And third would be living in community with people who are also explicitly committed to apprenticing with Jesus. Living transparently with others, not for show, but for sharpening. And this could be a small group or a mentoring relationship or some sort of other intentional apprenticing engagement which many Christians do not have, which many Christians do not seek out, which many Christians have never sought and never known or realized or been told that that was important. Jesus discipled people in small groups where there was accountability and feedback and interaction, where there were parables that applied and came out of and into their very daily lives. And fourth, aligning every aspect of one's life with Jesus and his way so that one is not seeking to be Jesus, but instead to live one's own life as Jesus would if Jesus was in one's shoes. It doesn't matter if one is a plumber or a bus driver or a teacher or a programmer or a scientist or attorney or baker or hairstylist or in sales 
It doesn't matter what one does for a living or what place one has in this world. But what Jesus hopes to form in each one of us by us spending time with him and his imprint slowly being more greatly embedded upon us is to shape us into people who in our lives are able to do what Jesus would do if he was in our shoes. Able to say what Jesus would say if Jesus was in our shoes. Able to think and to wish for other people and for our world and for ourselves what Jesus wishes if he were in our shoes. A friend who seeks to follow Jesus posted this image on social media last week saying, I'm renewing my commitment in this new year to living like Jesus with these bullet points listed below that. Party with sinners. Upset religious people. Say confusing things. Choose insignificant friends. Live, die, and die again. I thought that was interesting. And truly the way of Rabbi Jesus can be disruptive and certainly can be dangerous for oneself, as we will see more as we continue through Mark's gospel. But Jesus' call to his disciples is always to be with him, to stay near him, to learn from him, and to become more and more like him. In the first century, there was this idea that disciples or followers or students or apprentices of a rabbi would have the dust from his feet all over them because they followed him, literally, walking through the streets right behind him, as close to him as they could be. And so a good student or apprentice of a rabbi didn't follow at a distance but at close proximity so they could learn everything possible from this rabbi and begin to live like him and so would have the dust from his sandals and his steps all over them. The role of Christian leaders is first to follow and then to lead. The role of Christian leaders is first to follow and then to lead. And then in that following or by that following to lead others. A person cannot lead others where he or she has not himself or herself been. A person cannot lead others to a place where he or she has not first been. A person, a leader, can't take someone where someone doesn't know how to get. You cannot lead others where you have not been. I was saddened to see in the news this past week among the crowds entering the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday, some claiming to be so explicitly as Christians or waving the banners of Christendom. Friends, the world does not need people who merely carry placards, even in Jesus' name. The world does not need more apprentices of Chuck Schumer, or Mitch McConnell, or Nancy Pelosi, or Kevin McCarthy. We are spending time with, and so being discipled, by Anderson Cooper and Tucker Carlson, more than we are with Jesus. The world doesn't need more apprentices of them, but more apprentices of Jesus. The church certainly doesn't need more apprentices, students, followers, adherents 
of them. The church needs apprentices of Jesus. What the world desperately needs and what the church needs are people who have spent time with Jesus, who are learning from Jesus, who are becoming more and more like Jesus. Like the one who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead took on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, as a person. Who loved his neighbors, who loved strangers, who dared to love his enemies and invite his students to do and to be the same. As we prepare in a moment to ordain and install new elders and deacons, it's important that we remember that leadership matters. Being with Jesus matters. Spending time with Jesus matters. And more than matters is essential, is crucial for the church, in the church, for the coming of God's kingdom. And that is just the first thing. There will be a time when those leaders shaped, formed, molded, made by and in Jesus will be sent out to preach, to proclaim, to tell, to announce, to embody the kingdom that is here and that is coming, to heal and to cast out demons, to minister in Jesus' name. But first is to be with him, to spend time with him. In the words of Dallas Willard in a book of his that our elders and staff read together a couple of years ago, the world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt, but this is an age for spiritual heroes. A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and in power. The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They have done the best they could, no doubt, but this is an age for spiritual heroes. A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The group of 12 that Mark talks about in verses 16, 17, 18, 19 frequently get the attention of this passage. People would go through those 12 remembering what we know about Peter and James and John and Andrew and Judas, James, the others we know very little about. But the point isn't the qualifications that one comes to Jesus with. One's political persuasion or activity, what one does or has done for a living. Jesus gathered this ragtag bunch of largely uneducated men, and he equipped them. From the vast ends of the political spectrum, one who was eager to kill the Romans, one who had been employed by the Romans, and he invited them among all his followers to spend time with him, that they might be unified by being with him and in him and shaped by that time for leadership in his kingdom that was there and that was coming and that would come. To such God continues to call us as the church 
and particularly those he has appointed and is making into leaders for his glory. Let's pray. God, we confess that we come from all different places and backgrounds and wants and desires and predilections in weakness and in pride and in all kinds of ways. Thank you for the invitation to the 12 to go up on a mountain with you, to sit at your feet, to learn, to listen, to be shaped and molded. Grant us that same grace. And we ask and pray that those you have called to you to lead this congregation will also be granted the grace of sitting at your feet, being immersed in your word, of listening in prayer, of being shaped by others who seek you and who follow you. We thank you for them. We praise you for your goodness. We love you in Christ, our rabbi, Lord, and master. Amen.